Amen. Please be seated. Well, good morning, church. You are the remnant. You are the brave souls. Uh, It is so good to see. Actually, I'm really surprised to see so many of you here. Uh, This is Richmond, Virginia. As soon as the first flake falls, we are sent into apocalyptic panic. Um, I grew up in Chicago where this is just uh, like a drizzle. Um, But anyway, I'm really happy to see all of you. And I know that there's a lot of people uh, worshiping online right now. either gathered around in suit and tie in their living room or in their pajamas in their beds. Um, And so seriously, I just want to greet all of you, wherever you are uh, in Richmond, wherever you are in the world, and those of you who are here um, this morning, really grateful that all of us are here. We are in a a sermon series that we started last week here together um, that we're calling Let Heaven and Nature Sing. And so what we're doing, um, I think, is something really interesting, that we're taking some of these great hymns of Advent and Christmas that you know, we've sung all of our lives that we hear in Starbucks um, that are, are dripping with this profound theology that we are deaf to, and yet we are taking these songs and we're going deep into them, seeing the biblical theology behind them so that we can sing them with clear minds, deeper hearts. Clear minds, deeper hearts. That's what we want to go for here um, in this series. And so last week we began with an Advent hymn, Come That Long Expected Jesus, and today we're looking at probably what is the most famous of all Advent hymns, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. So if you would turn in your hymnals to page 61, um, you'll turn there to, we actually have all seven verses printed there in the hymnal. Let me just say a little bit about the background of this hymn. This hymn was probably written, we don't know for sure, but it was probably written in the seventh or eighth century um, by monks. It was written in a monastic community We don't know who was behind it. It's probably the oldest, one of the oldest hymns that we sing, period. Certainly the most, the oldest hymn that we sing during Advent and Christmas. Um, And it was actually carried on in the tradition of the monastic communities for many, many centuries, used as a chant in Latin. Uh, But then it was discovered in the 18th century by an English pastor named John Mason Neal. And he was so moved by the words that he translated into English and put it into a very famous British hymnal called Hymns Ancient and Modern, which was the most widely sold hymnal at the time, and so it began to circulate widely, and this was one of the most popular songs um, in the book. And so it's come to be one of the most well-known Advent and Christmas hymns today. So it has literally been sung for over a millennia, Um, and those are the words that we're looking at this morning. So if you'll keep your hymnal open to page 61, and then open your Bibles to Isaiah 64, or you can find uh, the reading on page 10 of your hymnal, I mean of your bulletin, ha, <laughs> bulletin, hymnal, bulletin, hymnal. Um, let's, uh, let's pray, let's pray and ask for God's help as we go to his word. We do thank you for the falling snow, our Lord and God. Thank you that it reminds us that you make us clean, white as snow, though our sins are as scarlet. We pray now that um, as we come to your word that you would open our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit, help me in the reading and preaching of your word, so that all of us would not just hear your word today, but be changed by it and respond to it in obedience and love. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So our reading, our Old Testament reading this morning is from Isaiah 64, verses 1 through 12. Hear God's word. Oh that you would rend the heavens 
and come down, that the mountains would tremble before you. As when the fire sets twigs ablaze and causes water to boil, come down to make your name known to your enemies. Cause the nations to quake before you. For when you did awesome things that we did not expect, you came down and the mountains trembled before you. Since ancient times, no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. You come to the help of those who gladly do right, who remember your ways. And when we continued to sin against those ways, you were angry. How then can we be saved? All of us have become like one who is unclean. All of our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. No one calls on your name or strives to lay hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and have given us over to our sins. Yet you, Lord, are our Father. We are the clay. You are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. Do not be angry beyond measure, Lord. Do not remember our sins forever. Oh, look on us, we pray, for we are all your people. Your sacred cities have become a wasteland. Even Zion is a wasteland. Jerusalem, a desolation. Our holy and glorious temple where our ancestors praised you has been burned with fire and all that we treasure lies in ruins. After all this, Lord, will you hold yourself back? Will you keep silent and punish us beyond measure? And then from Matthew 1, verses 20 through 23. But after Joseph had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins." All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Imagine that you get home one evening, and your spouse or your roommate says, hey, you got a call this morning. And some guy said he's going to come see you tonight. Who, you say? Well, your roommate says, I didn't get his name. All I know is that he said he's coming to see you and that it was very important. Now, aside from the fact that you may be slightly annoyed that your roommate failed to (laughs) receive the identity of this mysterious visitor, you are curious. You're intrigued, maybe even a little anxious. Who is coming Who is it and why? And why is this coming so important? You know, and it could be good news or bad news. On the one hand, it could be good news. It could be an old friend dropping by for a visit. It could be someone dropping off a gift or a card. It could be that lottery man, you know, with the big check come to give you the jackpot. Could be good news. On the other hand, it could be bad news. It could be someone that you offended coming to confront you. It could mean someone coming to serve you a notice of a lawsuit. It could be the bank coming to reclaim or evict you from your house. So who is coming, and is it good news or is it bad news? It all depends on who it is and what your relationship is to that person. 
You know, Advent means coming. We talked about that last week. It's about the comings of Jesus in the world, and all the songs of Advent are about coming. Last week we sang, come, thou long expected Jesus. Today we're speaking of this one. O come, O come, Emmanuel. And the question is, is this good news or is it bad news? And frankly, the Advent hymns are a little questionable about that. Some of them, like this, this hymn this morning says, rejoice, rejoice, he comes to thee. Other ones, like the choir just sang to you, are a little unsure. I don't know if you listen carefully to their words, and we'll sing them later. It says, so when he comes in glory, the world will be wrapped in fear. Another very famous Advent hymn is called, Lo, He Comes with Clouds Descending, and it goes like this. Every eye shall now behold him, robed in dreadful majesty. Listen, deeply wailing, deeply wailing, shall the true Messiah see. Whoa. So is this coming, is this coming Lord who comes into the world, is it good news or is it bad news? It all depends. It depends on your relationship to him. It depends on who he is, who we know him to be, and what your relationship to him is. And so what we want to look at this morning in this, on this theme of coming is just these three points. I want to first look at the need for his coming, why we're so desperate for him to come. Second, I want to look at the problem of his coming. And third, I want to look at the hope of his coming. Okay? Are you all with me this morning? Okay. So first, let's look at the need for his coming. Our Isaiah passage takes place in the time of the exile. We talked a little bit about this last week. Isaiah, had, uh, Isaiah and his people had been dragged into Babylon, and they were living as captives in a strange land. Now, I just want you to imagine your very worst nightmare has come true. That pagan empire that was always threatening you, that you feared, has come in upon your land and has raped, has murdered, has desecrated God's temple, and now has dragged you into a foreign land. Their worst nightmare has come true. And they are just now desperate for rescue. You know, I, I heard an interview the other day of a man who went, he lived in the place where all of those terrible fires have been in Northern California. And the interviewer was there when he came back to his neighborhood. And he walked out upon what was his neighborhood, green, lush grass, growing, flourishing trees, a beautiful home that his family had lived in for 20 years, ashes, black ashes, where his life and his family once stood. That's, that's the picture that we get here of what it was like for these Israelites. They are crying out for rescue. And so they say in verse one of our reading from Isaiah this morning, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. As when fire sets twigs ablaze and causes water to boil, come down and make your name known to your enemies. See, Isaiah 64 is a prayer of God's suffering people crying out to the Lord to come and rescue them. And this hymn, just like we talked about last week, is what it's doing is it's asking us to place ourselves in the shoes of these suffering Israelites, or to put it more accurately, it's taking their cry and putting it on our lips. O come, O come, Emmanuel. And ransom, set us free, captive Israel who mourns in lonely exile here. The hymn is inviting us to imagine ourselves as those Israelites stuck and struggling, homeless, defeated, oppressed, crying out for God to come and rescue them. And this hymn is brilliant, as all Advent hymns are, is because in singing it, we realize that it's not just their song, it's our song too. That we too are captive. 
We too are oppressed. We too are under attack and need rescue. You know, I, I do love this hymnal, but I have a bone to pick with it already. Uh, and, and, and that is this, that's this verse, verse three, or verse four, you can see in the hymnal as we sang it this morning, we sang, O come thou branch of Jesse's stem unto thine own and rescue them. The original version is a bit more edgy and I like it. I like the edginess, friends. And this is the original, you see up on the screen, this is the original verse. It says, O come thou rod of Jesse free, thine own from who? Satan's tyranny. Now, we don't like to sing about Satan, but a lot of the Advent Christmas songs do, you know. God rest ye merry gentlemen to save us all from Satan's power when we had gone astray. We don't like to sing about Satan. In fact, we don't even really like to think about Satan at all, except him either as a cute little red-horned cartoon or a horror film antagonist, but we have essentially expunged the person of Satan from our modern consciousness and made him into a thing of fiction. And I tell you, friends, this is exactly what he wants. Just read Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis. Yeah, the whole Bible is unflinching in its insistence that there is a real person called Satan, the real presence of evil at work in the world, and he is intent on destroying God's people, destroying God's good creation. The New Testament speaks of our world as if it is a country occupied by enemy forces, similar to World War II Europe occupied by the Nazi regime. Three times the Apostle John in his gospel calls Satan the ruler of this world. We are at war. And this verse boldly states that Satan holds us captive, that just like the Babylonians held the Israelites captive, so Satan holds our world captive. We are under the tyranny of Satan. Do you believe that? Do you feel that? I am not talking about silly poltergeist stuff like your desk floating across the room and that's stupid. That's foolishness. Satan is far more subtle than such things. You know, the, the word devil comes from the Greek diabolos, which literally means to throw through. Dia means through, bolos means to throw, to throw through. And it, it, the imagery is of an axe head being thrown through a piece of wood, splitting it clean. The devil is the splitter. He's the splitter. He is dead set on splitting this world into pieces, splitting humanity from God, splitting you from important people in your life, splitting nation from nation, splitting creation itself. Behind every broken relationship, the splitter. Behind every anxious, depressed, and wounded heart, the splitter. Behind every broken family, marriage, and friendship, the splitter. Behind every geopolitical conflict, the splitter. Behind environmental degradation, the splitter. Behind every death in which soul is separated from body, the splitter. Behind every human oppressor and abuser and dictator and thief and fiend is the true oppressor, the spiritual abuser who wreaks havoc on God's world and destroys humanity. And this is why, friends, this idea of human progress and enlightenment, that we will ever become more enlightened people saving us from our own human problems is a myth. It is a myth, and the wisest commentators and pundits among us know it to be so. 
I mean, we watch the same cycles of murder and chaos over and over again, like it's Groundhog Day. You know, Kenya elects a new leader under fair and clean democratic rule, and then in a few years, that same ruler is bringing his country into plunging them into dictatorial rule. You know, tiny little even movements of progress that we celebrate and, and clap together can be undermined in the instant. Remember uh, Tiant Williams, who was just here a few weeks ago, our mission partner who's running R- Richmond City Young Life among our schools, and we clapped, and we said, thank you, God, and we just felt so good about it. Well, guess what? One of his students, Rayshawn Williams, gunned down and killed sophomore at Jefferson High School, laying dead in his own blood in his own neighborhood Tuesday night. That's a splitter. The darkness is real, friends. It's deep, and there is no way to explain the havoc and chaos in our world than to affirm that there is an active presence and person of evil in this world, wreaking havoc, spreading darkness, sowing despair. And we desperately need God to come because, you know what? We can't fix this. We can't can't fix this with a new political party and with your favorite political ruler who finally gets into office. We can't fix this with some new economic plan or a better jobs report. We can't fix death. Don't be so naive. It is way worse than you thought. We are captive to Satan, to the tyranny of evil. And we need God to come. And Advent is so bold as to make us face the truth of that. Advent begins in the dark. Advent begins right there in that place of ruin. Disperse the gloomy clouds of night and death's dark shadow put to flight. So do you see? Do you see why we need him to come? We're desperate. So because of our great need, we, just like the Israelites, crying out for God to rescue, so we cry out for God to come and rescue us. And here's the good news. The good news is that the promise of Isaiah and the prophets is that God is coming. God is coming to rescue and to set our world finally right. Sometimes in Scripture, this is called Judgment Day. Sorry, I had to bring that up this morning. Sometimes it is called the Day of the Lord. But the whole of Scripture, both Old and New Testament, speaks of the day when God will come and he will banish all iniquity from the earth. He will come and judge evil and those who enact evil, and he will set creation right. And that's good news. You might not think it's good news. (laughs) Judgment Day might not feel like good news to you, but it is really good news. It is good news that we are not on this earth on a journey to nowhere, that nobody's driving this earth that we're spinning on. It is good news that it's not up to humanity to solve our own problems, that there really is ultimate meaning to this world and that we have a destination. That is good news. And if you don't think it's good news, just ask the little 12-year-old girl who is captive, enslaved in a brothel in Thailand. Ask her if it's good news that God is going to show up and judge evil. Ask the the desperate refugee mother who's running from a violent regime and has nowhere to go, no food for her children. Ask her if Judgment Day is good news. Ask the people who live in South Sudan and who every day are desperately fearing rape, homelessness, and death. Ask them if it's good news that God comes to judge the earth. See, it's very good news that God is coming to set things right and that the wicked will be thrown down and destroyed and that those who cause violence in the land will be defeated forever. That is good news. However, his coming is also bad news, and that's where we get to the problem of his coming. 
because it is bad news because we are all implicated. Isaiah 64, look with me again at the Isaiah 64 text. Isaiah 64 is interesting uh, because you see there in the beginning, verses one through three, it is really a prayer for the Lord to come and judge the enemies of God's people, right? As, fi- as fire sets twigs ablaze, come down, make your known, name known to your enemies. We like that. We like it to talk about God's judgment when it's talking about judging the people who hate us. But then in verse five, there's a shift. Do you see that? In verse six is this astonishing thing. It says, all of us have become like one who is unclean. All of our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf. And like the wind, our sins sweep us away. And suddenly we we realize, oh gosh, maybe we're happy to say that God's coming is bad news for terrorists and dictators and rapists and murderers. But good people, righteous people, it's bad news for me, for you. And the Bible says, yes, it is. You know, this phrase, our righteous acts are like filthy rags, is actually a very, uh, it's a very important verse to me personally. Um, you know, as a young adult, as a college student and young adult, really as a teenager, college student, young adult, really since I, my conversion when I was about 14, I was an exceptionally good person. Very good. You know, I was a star a youth group kid, I led a college ministry, I discipled you know, many of my peers, um, I read the Bible every day, I did not drink or chew or go with girls that do. I, um, I was extremely faithful you know, in many ways, and, and, and I, I was just really good. And you know, like in church, when we would have the prayer of confession, and we would all begin to silently pray, I could never think of anything. <laughs> I just would sort of sit there, pray for other people, because I couldn't think of anything for myself. Can you? Seriously, can you? Because it was through a mentor who really began to teach me about the gospel when I was about 20, and ultimately it was through the conviction of the Holy Spirit, and even through this verse, that I began to realize As we said in our confession this morning, proud thoughts and vain desires were dripping in my soul. I began to realize that all of this good that I was doing, I was doing actually for myself. The attention and the praise to earn the acceptance of other people, to earn God's favor so that he would somehow owe me something, frustrated with him when things didn't go well in my life because, I mean, after all, look how good I was. And what I begin to realize is that sin is actually not just doing bad things. Sin is separating yourself from God, living as if you're your own Savior and Lord. And you can do that by being very bad or by being very good. You can separate yourself from God by running from him and being that bad guy, or you can separate yourself from being very good and trying to save yourself through your own righteousness. Jesus saved his harshest words for the good people, his most damning critiques for the religious because he saw that all of their actions were not for God, but for themselves. Our righteous acts are but filthy, filthy, dirty rags before God. It's not just the bad sinners, it is the good people. It is us who fall under God's judgment. And this is not comfortable for us. We all like to divide the world neatly up into the bad people and the good people. Everybody does this. We are doing this more than ever before in our socially politicized, polarized environment that we're living in. Conservatives do this. Say it's the liberals. 
It's the people who advocate, you know, for sex outside of marriage and who undermine the Ten Commandments and who, those people who don't live good lives like me, they're the ones who are undermining American society today. But the liberals then do this to the conservatives, right? It's those narrow-minded conservatives, it's the people who do not practice tolerance and inclusivity like we do. They're the ones who are undermining our society. See, everybody's dividing the world up into the sinners and the saints, the good and the bad, those who are helping our world and those who are ruining it. And no wonder our world is fueled by the rage of angry superiority. And every once in a while, there is a voice of wisdom who is able to see, actually, we are all in the same boiling cauldron. There was a man named Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who was a Russian who wrote during World War, in, the, in post-World War II, and who had seen the brutalities of the Nazi regime against his own people who had suffered in the gulag himself, and yet he saw the capacity for evil in his own people. And he wrote this, the line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties. The line separating good and evil passes right through every human heart. One of the reasons why I love J.R.R. Tolkien and the, the stories of the Lord of the Rings is because like many other, unlike many other fantasy stories, even the beloved Star Wars films that, that pits you know, the light against the dark, Tolkien understood that the human heart is far more complex and complicated. Tolkien understood that the ring, and, and read, read them again and you will see this, that the ring holds power over all of us. That the evil that is Sauron is the same evil that is in all of us drawing us to power, drawing us to evil. The liberator quickly becomes the tormentor. Who can forget the images of the Abu Ghraib prison in the Iraq war? When those who came to liberate from those who tormented quickly became those who torment. See, none of us are clearly deposited on the side of good. All of us put in the right conditions, given the right opportunity, have the capacity for horrific evil, the evil that we hate. And the Christian, listen, the Christian is not somebody who looks out in the world and says, oh, those are the bad people, here's the good people. The Christian is the person who looks out on the world and says, Lord, have mercy. Have mercy on the bad. Have mercy on the good. Have mercy on me. My righteousness is but filthy rags. You see deep into my soul. You know the secrets of my heart. You know the idolatries of my soul. From the, listen, we just sang, from the depths of hell, your people save. Not those people, but us. Your people save. Save us from hell. Because left to our devices, damnation is our destiny. Do you believe that? Even us good ones. So you see the dilemma that we're in. We need God to come. Our world is a mess. We need God to come and judge evil and rescue from the oppressive powers of the devil that keep us captive in exile. We need to be set free because we can't fix our world. And yet his coming is terrible news for all of us. He is the mighty, holy God. He is the one, as verse 3 says in the hymn, in ancient times did give the law and cloud and majesty and awe. He is a God of holy fire who sees all, knows all, knows the secrets of the heart. And when he comes to judge the earth, none will be shielded from his glory. And so what do we do? His coming is a problem. Do you see what I'm getting at, friends? His coming is a problem. But thanks be to God. The God of mercy has taken our own dilemma into his hands. God has solved the problem of his coming in the most ingenious way that only God could have ever dreamed of. He came in a way that no one expected. The, all the Israelites of old expected God to come in one conclusive way, one 
moment of finality to judge the world, and they were not at all sure how they would get through it. But instead, God decides to come not once, but twice. He came, but he came as no one expected. Instead of arriving as a triumphant, radiant judge, he comes as a vulnerable little baby born to a teen mom that you can snuggle. You know, instead of a, of a judge riding a war horse to destroy his enemies, he comes as a homeless, wandering rabbi riding a donkey to lay down his life for his enemies. You know, Jesus was no pushover. He, you know, tossed over tables in the temple and he rebuked those who took advantage of the poor and he spoke of hell and judgment to be sure. But in his first coming, at least, he mainly comes in weakness and vulnerability. He comes in humility. He comes to suffer. And ultimately, he comes to die. What Jesus did is he looked out on the world. He saw this raging war that the devil had taken captive the humanity that he loved. And Jesus put himself in the space between the human race and the onslaught of Satan. And in doing so, he took upon himself the judgment of the sin of humanity as he suffered and died for us on the cross. The judge stepped out of heaven and became the judged. The one who oversees and rules over all things went under all things to be crucified. As we say in the creed, he descended into hell to take the judgment of the sin of humanity for us. And I want to tell you, this is one of the most astonishing things about our faith. Every religion in the world you will find has a concept of the last judgment. No religion in the world has the audacity to suggest that the one who stands in judgment on that final day is the one who also came and was judged in our place. That the great judge stepped out of the bench, stepped into the box, pushed the defendant out of the way, received himself the indictment, the conviction, and the execution that the judge is judged in our place. And now, listen, because of his first coming and his death and resurrection, his second coming can be a thing of joy. If God had just showed up once for all in the way the prophets talked about, we'd all be dead. Not a single one of us would be able to stand. Yet God came in weakness to suffer our judgment for us. John three seventeen. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. He came to save us all from Satan's power when we had gone astray. Thanks be to God that his second coming, we can rejoice over. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel. So let's just close by asking just some simple questions. What could we do? Let me make some simple applications to you. What should you do in light of this amazing message of his coming? Let me just suggest a few things. First of all, uh, repent. Uh, we are in between times. We're looking back on the first coming of Jesus and awaiting a second. And let me tell you something, and I just want to, Try to speak plainly about this. The first time he came quietly, secretly, born in the back of a barn in a podunk village, but the second time he comes, it will be with power and with glory so that everyone will know and everyone will see. And he will come and he will make the world right. He will purge the world of iniquity. And he will judge and destroy sin and evil forever. And we are implicated in that. And if you're wise, you would cry out, what shall I do? And Jesus says, repent. Repent, the kingdom of heaven is coming near. And that just means turn around, admit. Come clean, come clean. And here's what happens. The only way to face the coming judgment day is to get it done early, to preempt judgment. 
Some of you, you know, you know, we voted back in November, and you can register to vote early with an absentee ballot because you, you, you don't want to be there. You can't be there or something on, on the actual election day. Well, guess what? You can do that with Judgment Day. You can register early, you know? You can, you can participate in the Day of Judgment before it actually happens. Jesus actually says this in John 5. Anyone who hears my word and believes in me has passed through the judgment, has eternal life, has crossed from death to life. Look, you can invite judgment day now. You can admit your sin, acknowledge his penalty, trust in Jesus, believing that he has already absorbed all of your sin and the consequences of your damnation in his crucified body. And then you know there is no judgment left for you. It's all been poured out on Jesus. The judge has been judged for you, and the day of his coming can be a day of joy and welcome, not because you've lived a good life or because somehow on that day you think your good deeds will outweigh your bad, but because you have admitted that you are a sinner and have accepted by faith what Jesus has accomplished for you. You know that when he shows up, he will show up as a friend, a lover, and a shepherd. And that happens through repentance. So repent. And you know, those, some of you have been Christians for a long time. You, did, you repented maybe when you were 12 at summer camp around the campfire. But, but we need to keep on repenting, friends. The Christian life, as Luther said, is a life of continual repentance. And that leads to my second thing, the way you can do, is prepare. Advent is traditionally a season of repentance and self-examination in preparation for the coming king. You want to be ready, right? You're getting your house ready for all those family members that you sort of like who are coming uh, on Christmas. You're getting your house ready. Would you, why would you not prepare for the coming king? You know, in the winter of 1981, there was a blizzard in England. And the queen, it was around Christmas time, the queen was in her southern Sandrington Palace in Lincolnshire for the holiday, and she was making her way back to London in her motorcade, and on the way, the blizzard hit without warning. And her motorcade pulled over and tried to wait it out, and it got worse and worse and worse. It was impossible to go back. It got so bad so quickly that they had to find a place of lodging for the queen immediately. And so there was a pub on the side of the road. And you know, in England, often many pubs have rooms to rent. And so her security guards, this is a true story, her security guards went into the pub and the, the, the owner of the pub and his wife were standing there in the pub and the security guard asked if they could rent a room for the night. He did not mention who it was for. The pub owner laughed. He said, no, mate, we've not rented rooms for a decade. The security guard said, well, can we just rent one of your personal rooms then? He said, ah, no, mate, I don't think so. We're a bit crowded already. The security guard said, uh, let me say, sir, I really think you should reconsider. <laughs> the pub owner said, let me say, mate, I really think you're being a bit pushy. And at that moment, the queen walked in. Oh, my Lord, the pub owner's wife cried. I should have cleaned the carpets. <laughs> Friends, Advent is the season to clean the carpets. It's the season. Peter writes in 2 Peter 3, since all is to be dissolved on the day of coming, what kind of persons ought we to be? Be eager to be found without spot or blemish before him and to be at peace. You gotta get those spots out of that carpet, friends. This is a season to pursue holiness. It's a season to ask, and I wanna ask you very pointedly, what are you hiding in your life right now? 
that you don't even dare to name. Maybe it's something that your spouse has been telling you about and has been crying out for you to address, but you're refusing to admit it. What are you making excuses about? Is there a conflict or a resentment that you're refusing to resolve? See, Advent reminds us that the king is standing at the door and he's ready to show up. See those closed doors right there? You can just walk through any moment. And we're called to live lives that are ready for his coming, not because we're trying to earn our salvation or to be good enough when he comes. We already, we're already righteous before him through Jesus. We do it because we love him and he loves us. And we want to be found ready for our king. So take time, time this season to do some of that reflection to prepare. How, how might you need to make your life ready? How might you need to pursue holiness in a way that you've neglected? And then one last thing, we fight. The devil has already lost. When Jesus died and rose, he delivered the death blow to Satan and he is on his way to the grave. But guess what? He's still alive. He is, as John said, the ruler of this world. And here's what Satan is now doing. He is on a slash and burn mission to take down as many and as much as he can. And those who have been brought from death to life and who have been brought into the light, we are called to fight against the evil and the principalities of this world. We don't just sit there passive being holy. No, I love what uh, Beth Moore says. She says, holiness is love lit with fire from heaven, carried like torches into the darkest abyss. You know, we do battles against the forces of darkness. Our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. So we fight against darkness. We do battle against all of the forces in our world that oppress, destroy, and split. I mean, this could be in dramatic ways, like Dr. King standing up against the forces of Jim Crow and segregation in the South. But this could be in ordinary ways, too. I think of my friend who's a builder and a developer who refuses to cut corners and give in to declining standards, despite the fact that it means a dent in his own profits. He is fighting against the forces of darkness in our world. I think of the teacher that I met with this week that is laboring on in his classroom despite his paltry pay and despite the near horrific state of his classroom. He is laboring on because he loves his children. He is an Advent man. You know, I think of the woman in our church who told me recently she was not gonna leave her marriage despite the lack of love she feels in it and the strong temptation she has to be happier with somebody else. That is an Advent woman. I think of the kids among you, some of you kids who refuse to give in to the gossip and bullying and the culture of harm pervasive in your schools, right? Anything that we do, any act of kindness or courage, any act of compassion that eases the load of another, any act of justice that speaks truth to power, any act of celebration that rejoices in the triumph of light over darkness, these are acts of war. These are acts of defiance against the principalities of the darkness of evil that seek to destroy our world. And it is a sign of the advent that the one who is and who was and who is to come. We are advent people. We live in the light. We live in the dark, but we fight for the light, knowing that the light is coming and that one day the day spring will come. And that when he does, he will set all things right and he will finally and utterly destroy our tyrant Satan. And the devil the splitter, and all of his minions of evil will be utterly destroyed forever and there will be no more tears and all sighing and sorrow will flee away. And until that day, we fight. So friends, let me conclude 
We sing this morning, O come, O come, Emmanuel. This is a song about the one who comes. Let me show you something really amazing about this hymn. You know, there are seven names of Jesus given in this hymn. And here they are in the Latin. O sapienta, which means wisdom. O Adonai, which means Lord. O radix Jesse, stem or root of Jesse. Clavis David, key of David. Orion's day spring. Rex genitium, which is either king or desire of the nations. And O Emmanuel. And here's what these monks did. So if you take the first letter of each of the names of Jesus, and then you put them in order and then reverse them, it becomes cross, a backward acrostic, which in Latin means tomorrow I come. Those monks will blow your mind. <laughs> he comes. The shepherd, the king, the day spring, the Lord, he comes. And I pray that you would trust in him. I pray that you would prepare for him. I pray that you would preempt his judgment even now. And that you would fight on behalf of the light so that when the door is opened and Jesus is standing there, your heart will swell with joy and you will know that everything and everyone that you have ever longed for is now finally given and fulfilled in him. O come, Emmanuel. Amen. We're going to pray. And let's pray using uh, this refrain or this antiphon, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel. What we'll do is we'll sing it, and then I'll pray a brief prayer, and then we'll sing it again, and then I'll pray and we'll sing again, okay? So just follow my lead, follow Kim's lead uh, as we sing together. So let me pray for us as we prepare. Father, we thank you that in this season of Advent, we remember that Jesus came and yet he is coming. And though that it often feels that we, be, we are being ripped apart by evil, that the devil has already lost and the day of his final triumph is coming. And so we sing together the refrain, O come, O come, Emmanuel. <laughs>